The American Embassy in Islamabad issued a statement deploring the crime and pledging all assistance in finding the perpetrators, but otherwise had no comment. Four days after Powers was killed in Peshawar, a team of special agents from the FBI's Washington field office broke into his townhouse, a large brownstone on Peace Street just off Wisconsin Avenue in Georgetown in the District of Columbia. The agents searched the house for most of a day, seizing a large number of documents, business records, personal tax returns, bank and credit card statements, phone bills, newspaper clippings, and three personal computers. In an otherwise empty desk drawer, office, second floor, they found Powers' Pentagon entry card, and with it his color-coded and still valid VNE, Visit No Escort, badge, which when Powers was alive, had given him access to numerous cipher-locked and windowless rooms of the inner rings of the Pentagon. In a bedroom closet on the third floor, the team found a shoebox containing two U.S. passports, one in Powers' name that he had reported lost, and another issued in the name Guy Rutherford. It had Powers' photo in it, but was no longer valid. Stuffed into this second passport and bound with thick rubber bands were a Virginia driver's license with Powers' picture, various credit cards, a checkbook, and business cards, all in the name Guy Rutherford. The passport also contained a snapshot of Powers standing with four other men, Africans. They are dressed in camouflage gear decorated with military insignia. They are standing in a bleached-out, desiccated landscape. One of the men, the one standing closest to Powers, is wearing a British-style officer's cap. In the night table in the same sparsely furnished bedroom, the team found two other photographs. One, large and in color, was framed. It had been taken in front of what the FBI later determined was Powers' London townhouse, an expensive late Victorian off Drayton Gardens in South Kensington. It is a sunny day. The townhouse of brilliant white. Powers is standing in the courtyard in front of the house. He is bent toward the camera, awkwardly, as if not knowing what to do with his arms, but grinning. He has an almost handsome face. He is a tall, slim, gangly-looking man, big-framed but trim at the waist. He has thick, red-blonde hair that's receding a little, a mustache, He's wearing wire-frame glasses that give him a studious, half-intellectual air. The air, some might guess, of a smart lawyer. He looks to be in his fifties. Behind him, parked on the beige gravel of the courtyard, is a classic silver-gray Bentley. And, leaning her hips on its passenger-side hood, her arms crossed, is a beautiful woman wearing a black-and-white tweed business suit, a white blouse, a small red bow tie. She is perhaps in her late thirties. She has long black hair and fine features. She is staring at the camera, unsmiling. The other photograph, not framed, showed a young woman, naked, lying prone, sunning herself on what looks to be the deck of a sailboat. The young woman's face is turned from the camera. Her oiled back glistens in the bright sunlight. She has short, reddish hair and trim, young legs and buttocks. 
The day the FBI searched Powers' Washington townhouse, Mohammed Atta, a 33-year-old Egyptian national, and a colleague named Marwan al-Shehi, ten years younger and a citizen of the United Arab Emirates, began training on a Boeing 727 flight simulator at Sim Center, Incorporated, an aviation school located at Opalaka Airport outside Miami, Florida. Atta had entered the country on June 3, 2000, al-Shehi on May 29, 2000. At Sim Center, Atta and al-Shehi each trained for 90 minutes. In its advertising, the school promises to produce airline-qualified pilots in the shortest time possible. Between training sessions at Sim Center, Atta and al-Shehi drove north to Fort Lauderdale and bought four portable GPS-3 global positioning devices from Tropic Aero, an aviation supply shop. Such devices, they thought, might allow them to guide aircraft from point to point without having to rely on radio beacons or advice from control towers. Part 1. Morning. February 12th through April 27th. Chapter 1. February 12th. Pray for war. Will we ever... I mean, ever figure that asshole. Bill Kleppinger, sour this chilly morning, shoots me a look when he asks this, then goes back to staring out the window of our government service Chevrolet at the rain, a sullen, sloppy February drizzle descending on the George Washington Parkway. I shrug. Beats me. We're talking about Ed Powers. And with Ed... Well, the more you know, it always seems the less you know, even now. Klepp and I are being driven from CIA headquarters in Virginia into the District of Columbia. We are both officers with the agency. Klepp heads the Anti-Terrorism Action Committee, ATAC in the jargon, and I am special assistant for counterterrorism to the director of the agency. We have a mid-morning appointment on Capitol Hill with a Senate aide named Jim McLennan, McLennan is Chief of Staff, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, whose members are supposed to watch over our doings. McLennan has told us he wants to talk over what he calls the powers thing. Bill and I have gamed this morning's session, and we know pretty much what we want to tell McLennan about Big Ed. He will hear that, and no more. We are both, nevertheless, deeply uneasy. Powers, a private businessman, had been working for us on contract when he was murdered. He had been in the thick of an operation codenamed No Refuge, a program we are running out of Peshawar. We think his connection to No Refuge may have gotten him killed. No Refuge is beyond sensitive. Its object is to capture an Arab named Osama bin Laden. We have four presidential directives, formal executive orders, tasking us to do the job, and we want to, badly. No Refuge, as befits its purpose, is an elaborate and tricky project, relying on telephone and other electronic intercepts, and a small network of human informants we've been able to develop with much delicate work. Through No Refuge, we have gotten to know who some of Bin Laden's top people are, and their addresses, 
We have even learned some of bin Laden's operational style, the way he travels, what his personal security procedures are. Powers, who knew many strange people in this world, got some Afghan tribals to attack a convoy carrying bin Laden outside Kandahar, his city of choice in southern Afghanistan. Rather than go for a capture, the tribals simply slammed a rocket-propelled grenade into one of bin Laden's Toyota Land Cruisers, incinerating the thing. Wrong Land Cruiser, though. The great man escaped. But then, a few months later, Powers died. Klepp and I, some other people at Attack, don't like the timing. We think bin Laden's group, Al-Qaeda, may have killed Powers in retaliation for the attack on their leader. If so, it means Al-Qaeda and bin Laden are onto no refuge and know at least some of what we've been up to. Powers' death may therefore signal the unraveling of the operation. Terrible, if true. We are getting increasing chatter, ambiguous phone intercepts, vague reports from dubious sources, suggesting that Al-Qaeda is planning something very large, perhaps in the United States. We can't tell what. We are beside ourselves. It is a delicate time, and we do not need a Senate committee barging in on this. I look over at Kleppinger. We never found out about McLennan. Huh? McLennan? Why he never got told Powers was agency? Under current protocol, enshrined in two official memorandums of understanding between us and each oversight committee, House and Senate, we should have informed them when Powers was murdered that he had been an agency contractor.